Hey, I'm John. And I'm Becky. And this is the We Are For Good podcast. Nonprofits are faced with more challenges to accomplish their missions and the growing pressure to do more, raise more, and be more for the causes that improve our world. We're here to learn with you from some of the best in the industry, bringing the most innovative ideas, inspirational stories, all to create an impact uprising. So welcome to the good community. We're nonprofit professionals, philanthropists, world changers, and rabid fans who are striving to bring a little more goodness into the world. So let's get started. Okay, Becky, we have been counting down, what, it's been six months we've been waiting for this conversation? We've been waiting for this conversation for six months. But I will tell everybody that this is one of the first times I've gone through someone's bio and I could literally not omit anything from Tara's bio because she is one of the most (laughs) impressive, one of the most kind and heartwired people I think we've ever had on the podcast. So we are just so delighted to have Tara Abrahams here on the podcast today. She is the head of impact at The Meteor, and she's also the board chair at one of our favorite nonprofits. She's the first. And we want to give a shout out to Tammy Tibbetts and Kristen Brandt, two of our dear friends. And she is also on the board for the International Center for Research on Women. So we have someone that is working at the intersection of gender equity, multimedia and using research and voice to really empower and uplift women. And so I want to give just a little bit of background um, on where Tara started. But in 2021, she founded Kahani, which is a print magazine and a medium platform designed to amplify the stories of adolescent girls around the world. You're going to hear this empowerment of girls throughout all of this, by the way. (laughs) And she really started her work in girls' education at Girl Rising, which is a global movement and feature film that raised awareness about the importance of educating girls in the developing world. Tara has also served as the founding director at Maverick Capital Foundation, which is a strategy consultant at The Bridge Span Group. She's advised a variety of leading girls and women-focused initiatives from Girls Who Code and Vow to In Child Marriage to the Obama Foundation's Girls Opportunity Alliance, founded by our former First Lady Michelle Obama, who is probably on our like most dreamy, ungettable get list. Um, but she was also recently named to Apolitical's <laughs> list of the 100 most influential people in gender policy. And she's also was added to the 2022 class of presidential leadership scholars, which is a BDD, a big damn deal. For anybody who does not know this, she is in there with our dear friend, Isla Malik, and all these extraordinary world changers. So Tara, I know we could go on and on, but I also want to say she is a mother. She is a wife. She cares about people so deeply. And I, we just felt that the first time we ever met her. So we're excited to just pick your brain, learn from you and figure out how we can empower girls today. Welcome Tara. Thank you so much for having me. Are we done? (laughs) I mean, I should just leave it there because I think it's just going to all be downhill. I don't know. I don't know if you're aware of this, but you're kind of amazing. And I kind of want to be you when I grow up, but I, I want to know where all this came from. Like, Take us back to little Tara. Where did you grow up? How did her heart for empowering women start and lead us to today? Well, it was a journey. I will say that. I um, grew up in a northern suburb of Chicago. My mom kind of hauled us to this neighborhood because she had heard how great the public schools were in this particular area of Chicago. So like many families, um, 
education was the most important thing. My mom's from the Philippines. My dad's from India. They met when they were both getting their PhDs in chemical engineering, obviously big underachievers. So I kind of fell far from the tree on the (laughs) science front. But in any event, I, I really date a lot of my work and my journey to that time as a young person because it was an interesting place and an interesting time. So I came from two different cultures. It was a pretty homogenous um, community. There weren't a lot of people who looked like me or who had my background. You know, there weren't a lot of people who were either Filipino or Indian, let alone the combination of the two. And so, you know, that was interesting. And then, especially at the time, and I will date myself now, late 80s, early 90s, you didn't have as much of the celebration of diversity and multiculturalism that you have today, fortunately. And for me at the time growing up, I sort of felt some of these tensions around really this this idea of, of blending in. And the reason I bring that up is because I thought I was going to do what every good daughter of immigrants will do, which is become a doctor, right? And so I think that was a little bit of where the ethos of service started. But also because this community was proximate to Chicago and was in sight of a lot of the challenges that Chicago was going through at that time. And and I'm sure many big cities and everywhere is going through around gaps in education, gaps in social services. From a very young age, I was invited to volunteer. And that was a formative experience for me as a young person, because as someone who didn't have a lot of resources, no connections, um, nothing kind of but my smarts and my heart, to be asked to contribute something beyond myself was very inspiring and empowering for me. And so I think that's really what set the foundation for me to go on and do some of the things that I've done. It was instilled in me, I think by virtue of those circumstances from a very early age that I had something to to contribute. And I think that's such an important thing for young people to know and to be told and to be challenged to do is that you can start so early on making your community a better place. That's what I was asked to do and charged to do. And along with my friends, my buddies, we did that. And it was, it was really just a wonderful experience to start to volunteer at that time. Oh my gosh. Thank you for taking us back because it just kind of makes sense knowing and seeing the impact and the footprint that you have today. What has just struck me about you since the first time before I met you. And then when I met you is that you have put stakes in the ground of like, this is why I'm here. This is the values that I'm fighting for. It's how I'm orienting my entire life around this to really champion things. And the second piece that I realized about you is we met kind of through Tammy and Kristen who started She's the First, and they were just effusive about their board chair. And they were effusive about you as a human of the hearts and the smarts that you speak of, (laughs) but of how they learn from you, but how they co-partner with you in that role And to me, I guess it just grew my heart of like, man, this is what board leadership could look like. And I think the way you show up value-driven with your heart, with your mind is really, I hate that it's disruptive, but it's not how all boards look. Mm. And so I'd love for you to kind of 
share a little bit about your board experiences, and then we're going to try to unpack the mindsets that make the Taras because we want to replicate you. We want as many Taras out in nonprofit oh as humanly possible. Oh, that's so kind. I, I mean, look, there were fits and starts, right? So before I ended up in this sort of dreamy, dreamy position that I feel I have as the board chair of She's the First, which we can talk about in a second, there were definitely moments in my journey where I was in a board role and it just wasn't a great fit. And I think there were a number of reasons for that. One, um, just to sort of skip ahead in the in the Tara story a few chapters. Um, I didn't go to medical school. I don't know if that's obvious, but I didn't. I ended up going <laughs> I ended up going to business school. So I, I graduated from college, was a young person working in New York City in community health, was thinking about what my career trajectory would be. And I was looking to see, oh, wow, there are a lot of job descriptions that really elevate the MBA as something that would be really useful for nonprofits. So I went, I went off and I went to business school. But the challenge for me was that I didn't at that time... As a probably early mid twenties, didn't really have one particular issue that really moved me and inspired me. So I kind of always thought of myself as somewhat behind the scenes, being a COO type, and so therefore business school would be a really good thing for me to do. I say all of that by way of background because, from the perspective of the board roles that I took on during that period of time, as I moved back to New York and started to make my way post MBA. I didn't really have what Tammy and Kristen talk about, right? That North Star. I didn't have that. And so at that point in my career, I knew I was making impact. I did know that empirically, intellectually, I knew I was doing good work, but I wasn't inspired by the work that I was doing. It wasn't the kind of work that got my eyes popping open at 6 a.m. in the morning and then kept me from sleeping at midnight that night and everything in between that you could imagine. And I was really in a rut, I would say. And I think that's the reason that some of those early board positions for me just weren't a great fit. I think the other thing at that time too was it was almost the thing to do, the thing I was supposed to do was start to get on boards because that's kind of what you're supposed to do. And yet, if some of these factors don't come together in alignment, it's not the right time and it won't be valuable either for the board member or for the organization. So I think it's really important to examine and unpack the reasons that you want to join a board in the first place. And there are lots of reasons that you could want to do that. Is it, of course, about the mission of the organization? Are you drawn to those particular, the leader or the leaders of the organization? Is there a kind of peer group or aspirational group that you would be part of by joining a board? Is there professional advancement that can come from joining a board and having a position with an organization and in a governing role? I think all of those reasons are incredibly important. And it, it can be one, it can be many, but I do think it's important to isolate what for you as the prospective board member is the most powerful thing or the, the reason that you want to join a board in the first place. And if I look back on my career and when the shift happened to when my board positions were more productive and more fulfilling, I think both sides, it was because I had, I think just through a series of just, it was destiny. It was fate. Whatever you believe in, it really was. It was, it was because I stumbled into the field of girls' education 
and women's empowerment through Girl Rising. That's really what I can just clock it to going back, I guess, more than a decade now, which is crazy to, to say. Yeah, that would have been 2010, right? For sure. I mean, I, I want you to talk about that. Mm-hmm. I, I want you to talk about that moment because I, I see retrospectively how passionate and on fire you are for this cause. And I think about what it must have been like before you found that cause where you're just trying to get in your lane and find purpose. And and I want you to talk about girl rights which holy smokes, is this a powerful organization? And and the way that you started to focus on girls and women, and then you started to find the right board roles, like lead us through that sort of evolution of yourself and tell us what you learned. Sure. So I was probably a few years out of my MBA and I was in what on paper would be considered just an ideal position and role, which was leading a new, small, but pretty influential foundation at a financial firm here in New York City. The focus of the foundation was really on social services in New York City. So job creation, supporting people who are homeless or unhoused, health services to a certain extent, lots of education reform, very focused on New York City, um, which was really interesting and dynamic. Again, not necessarily the, the pull that I wanted, but you know, I tell this story a lot, right? When you are the head of the foundation, lots of really interesting people want to take you out to lunch and tell you about all the cool things that they do, right? Because of course, they're interested to see if there's any potential for support there. So I had just met such fascinating people throughout the course of my time at the foundation and always tried to be helpful, of course. Um, So, but this one, I, I think, I hope I was really, really helpful because I ended up meeting Holly Gordon, who's now a mentor of mine. She was the executive producer and co-founder of what would eventually become Girl Rising. And I truly, it was it was a friend of a friend to this nth degree said, oh, you work at a foundation, you might want to sit down with Holly and hear about what she's doing. So Holly lays it out, the initial idea. I mean, this really was back in 2010 when it wasn't even called Girl Rising. We're a group of journalists. We uh, did some research on the best ways to alleviate poverty globally. And every single expert, whether it was public health, economic development, um, education, told us that one of the top things that you can do is invest in the education of adolescent girls. And once you do that, all of these incredible things start to happen. Communities, cities, countries start to improve. If there's anything that we have that could resemble a silver bullet, this is it. It's girls' education. So we want to make a film telling the stories of different girls in different countries, pair them with writers from their countries to basically reimagine their stories. We want to make this beautiful film and then we want to pair it with an action campaign, uh, generate uh, uh, partnerships with nonprofit organizations to actually have impact on this issue. And it was like lightning had struck when I was sitting there talking to her. Everything made sense and fell into place because I was the perfect test case someone who's fairly well-educated, socially aware, right? I I had what we wouldn't call it at that time, but I think we would now, a social justice orientation, right? Or aspiring to. Here was an issue that everyone in the world should know about, and yet we didn't, right? This is is before Malala. You're right. And Becky, it was 2010, right? So 
This was was Premalala, and we we of course we never wish that she had to come on the global stage the way that she did, but that's just to set the stage a little bit for where we were with awareness around this issue. Girl Effect had barely come out with their first video, right? So this was really early days in terms of the girls' education. What I think now she's the first we would call the girls' rights movement. And so for me, everything just clicked at that moment, and I realized that I had found it. I had found it. Gender equity women's empowerment, girls' education, all of those things have been, those. that's the lens through which I have looked at my career since then. It also helped that at the moment that I was sitting there chatting with Holly, I was pregnant with my first daughter. I was thinking about what my working life would look like once I had her. I was thinking about the world that she was going to come into. And I really, I, I believe in certain things and I, I believe in that moment. That moment was everything to me. And it's, it's basically been the defining force of, of the past 10 plus years of my career and my life. Yeah, I just feel like when that gets in alignment, it just allows you to just start sprinting. And there's so many things that I kind of want to like go back and camp out on, but I think these moments, and I think of Susan McPherson, who I know is a mutual friend too, she talks about this constellation of connections and just this idea of building this network of people that you never know how one thing is going to completely change the trajectory of your life and one meeting. And I just think of like the impact that you're having now a decade beyond that or a little even more than that. And you're just getting started, you know, and I, we're going to talk about the meteor and I can't wait to hear about that. But can we go you know, for someone that's listening and I'm sitting here listening and saying, how do you break in? And, and if you want to, you know, join a board, you've got this fire in your heart. Maybe you found that thing. What's those questions to ask yourself, you know, so you don't get in the place where you're holding people back or even holding yourself back. Um, what's the right questions to ask as you're trying to break into a board somewhere? Yeah, it's a really good question. It comes right back around to she's the first, which pretty much got up and running around the same time that Girl Rising did, right? So we, I, we at, at Girl Rising always looked to partner with She's the First. And then I personally always kept my eye on what I She's bet. the First was doing. <laughs> always. I've been honest with Tammy and Kristen. This is absolutely how it went down. I was tracking them. Maybe they were also tracking me, but I was definitely tracking them. And I've got witnesses to attest <laughs> to this. But I mean, John, to your question on a practical level, one of the things that ended up happening is as I was having my babies, because that was always a little bit of a juggling act and try to figure out you know, what that right balance was for me. Um, I was always looking for opportunities to stay engaged and involved. And I spent, you know, great number of years at Girl Rising and then went on to, to advise Girls Who Code, International Center for Research on Women. But again, I always kept my eye on, eyes on She's the First. And truly, something came across my email that was Harvard Business School related, which is where I got my MBA. They were looking for a pro bono consultant to do a project for an organization called She's the First. Again, setting the context of course, there were a lot of people and organizations, NGOs doing girls' education work, but it was through Malala, Girl Rising, Girl Effect, all of these other entities that it started to have its moment in the public consciousness, which is exactly the goal of the, of the initiative. So I raised my hand to do that pro bono project because I felt like it was a really great way to re-engage, learn about the organization in a practical way, and start to explore if it was really a place 
for me to deepen my engagement in the girls' education space and sector. So I think being open to some of those opportunities, some traditional, some non-traditional. I mean, a lot of organizations have great structures around starting to build a pipeline of prospective board members, advisory committees, young professional groups, right, that, that engage sort of the next generation of folks to do fundraisers and, and advocacy campaigns so that they start to get to know one another, right? Get to know if it's a, a fit on both sides. So I would say on a practical level, being open to those opportunities and also just doing the work to find them. It doesn't happen magically. I don't mean to, in telling my story, want to make it seem that it was all magic and, and kismet. I mean, there was a little bit of that in there, but at the same time, it was a lot of work. It was work to do the project. It was work to join the advisory committee at She's the First, which is what I did next. And I, I definitely want to emphasize that you got to do your research. You got to do your homework um, because I think that's what ultimately allows you to find the best fit. And I do think, especially this next generation of board members, I would argue, really needs to be in it with their whole heart in terms of knowing that there's work to be done and these organizations really rely on board members to contribute of themselves and in particular their skill sets to the advancement of their mission. It's not just about showing up for a meeting three times a year. You know, they really want you to be engaged. And the culture around engagement looks different at every organization. And that dynamic between the board and the actual staff and management looks different. But at the end of the day, an organization, their leadership wants the board to be their biggest cheerleaders, their biggest advocates, and they really want them to be engaged and invested in what the organization is doing. And that takes work. It takes work on both sides. The thing that's striking me about you so much, Tara, and, and, and why it's so antithetical to what my experience has been in nonprofit is you hustle it out for your mission. <laughs> and I mean, I want everybody out there listening to raise your hand and say, who has a working board and who has an advisor board? Because if you don't have a working board, you are not maximizing the passion, the potential, the network, the financial gain on any part of the volunteerism. And so, I, I mean, I would just challenge everybody out there like, what is your board engagement strategy? I know we've had Sabrina Walker Hernandez come on and talk about this. Crystal Cherry has talked about this on the program, but like I, I listen to you and how passionate you are and, and you're so curious and you absorb data. And if you were on my board, I would be pushing you articles all the time about what's going on in the world or why think, where's potential, where is a landmine, where's something we need overcome. And even just pushing that information to you is cultivating you, not necessarily as a donor, but we call it a believer, somebody who believes so deeply in the mission that they're willing to show up in any way. And I think that's the value of what someone like you brings to the sector. B, can I jump in and say from the nonprofits listening, there is intentional engagement to create this kind of pipeline. You know, I think it's you like said it strategy. Yes. And I just think like yes. Tammy and Kristen are such strategists that they are creating those engagement opportunities. So that's something everybody can lean into. Well, and I do think, um, Becky, you kind of alluded to this in terms of this idea of Tammy and Kristen or wh whoever the leadership may may be, and she's the first or any organization really pushing knowledge and information to someone like me as the board chair or a board member. And I think that is 
really important and is reflective of my experience in particular working with, with She's the First, which is that I never went into it with the idea that I had everything to teach them. In fact, yeah. I didn't go into it with that idea at all, actually. For me, it was much more about what they had to teach me. And I'm a huge believer in this idea that mentorship goes in so many different directions. And in no place is that more evident than in my relationship with Tammy and Kristen as the leaders of She's the First. Because I think there's a, there's a false notion out there that mentorship only happens between the mentor who is more experienced, i.e. years on the earth, (laughs) (laughs) which I definitely have on them. You're not showing Um, it. Your skin routine looks great. So, (laughs) yeah. So I think that, I think that's, um, that's a little bit tricky for me. Just this idea that a mentor can only be someone who has been around longer and it's their job to teach the younger generation how to be and how to operate and how to manage and how to lead. I think it, It absolutely goes in so many different directions. There are peers of mine who are incredible mentors to me. Tammy and Kristen are incredible mentors to me. I have learned so much from just understanding how they want to push the field of girls' education, push the field of of nonprofit management. And I will tell you, we don't always agree. That's another part of it. We do not always agree. It is. It is. And I have learned so much about the, from those moments where they really challenge me to think in a different way about the work that we're doing, about how we talk about the work that we're doing, and um, the kind of impact that we want to have in the world. And that, I think, is a really important dimension to be thinking about as you go into a potential board position is what do you have to learn? I've no doubt that so many people out there as prospective board members have so much to contribute because I believe everyone does. However, I think an equally important question is what do I have to learn as a board member from going on this journey with this organization? Because that's, I think, what's going to make the relationship that much stronger and help set the stage and foundation for much more highly functional board staff relationship and ultimately board culture, which is so important to be thinking about actively. Okay. I just have to make an observation that is just blowing my mind here because we have a conversation that's coming up in very much the same vein with Mona Sinha, who is the, who is a dear friend of yours and she's a board chair for women's moving millions. And twice now we have women who are board chairs that are saying, I don't always agree. And I love that we debate. I learn from them and they're, is a complete absence of power dynamics in this that I don't think honestly I've ever seen in my experience and when I've worked in nonprofits. And there, I think the, the problem with boards for a lot of people is it just seems so hierarchical and so untouchable. And you can't have these conversations. And there are gatekeepers and there are things to say and when not to interrupt. And that is not present in any part of what you're telling me right now because you all just want the end product the girl at the end of this to succeed. And when there's no ego and there's high hustle, it's no wonder to me that you all are scaling and growing so quickly. I I think that's right. I mean, I hope that's right. (laughs) That's the way we're doing it. 
I hope it's working. I mean, I, I just do think it's it's what you said around driving towards the impact. I just don't think that there's any space nor even time for ego, right? I, I think yeah. that um, these issues are so urgent and there is so much work to be done and we're chipping away at it. All of these organizations are doing incredible things to support women and girls around the world, but I don't want to get mired in in you know the the politics potentially of of board chair and the the governing committees and and this that and the other I want to give people like Tammy leaders like Tammy and Kristen and Peggy Clark at International Center for Research on Women I want to give them ownership over the organizations that they are leading and I want them to fly and I'm going to be in the background and I'm going to be as helpful as I can, whenever I can, wherever I can. But I want them to just do their thing. I can't figure out another way to say it. I just want them to be able to do their thing because at the end of the day, that's what's going to lead to more impact for women and girls. Full stop. I mean, this is why we said we want to bottle you up. And this is like such a North Star to the industry. I mean, we feel like the nonprofit sector is changing quickly at the same time. We're trying to figure out how to really empower boards to step into this moment. And I want to just give you the floor to say, what is what does meeting the moment look like for really empowering a modern fundraising board today? You've just got to listen. Start with that. And we have thought a lot about this at She's the First because we're small but mighty. We're growing. And it's obviously been an interesting time for nonprofits over the past few years here we are sitting in 2022, I took on the board chair role of She's the First January 1, 2019, if I'm clocking it You had no idea what was ahead. (laughs) Absolutely right. So I I clocked a full year um, before, you know, eventually the the pandemic hit in, in early 2020. So pretending that we're back in that sort of 2019 spot, what I thought was really interesting and modern about she's the first. And one of the reasons why I came on board was the the fact that even as a small organization, there was a a sense of the, the need to diversify funding beyond any one revenue source. I think for me, the older guard and the, and the way that fundraising has often happened for organizations is that some amazing philanthropist, and we love them dearly, ends up you know, adopting almost an organization and making it their, and I'm going to use this word very purposefully because we can talk about how, how Tammy and Kristen as leaders of She's the First feel about it, make it their charity of choice, right? And for us at She's the First, as we were building and as I came on to the board chair role and started to learn about what Tammy and Kristen had been building for a long time. It was frankly, without that benefactor from the sky coming in and and basically infusing the organization with a really good foundation from a budget perspective. And so talk about hustle. They were hustling on so many other different dimensions of their fundraising strategy. So thinking about grassroots fundraising, thinking about how to um, mobilize the corporate sector, thinking about how communications and marketing could really elevate the brand and really 
as the saying goes, right, punch above our weight in terms of how the budget size was relative to our reputation in the field. And it's no accident that She's the First has been built the way that it has been, given the fact that Tammy and Kristen both started in journalism and both started with an understanding of how you communicate effectively. So key and so critical in, in the nonprofit space, right? We have incredible organizations doing unbelievably powerful work, driving so much impact. But if you can't talk about it, how does the word get out there? And so what I love about She's the First is all these different levers leading to different kinds of funding support, which I think is so powerful. So it's not just foundations, right? We're really building on uh, building on a strong foundation there, but certainly it's around corporate partnerships. It's definitely around making sure that there's a kind of participatory strategy where, you know what? Yeah, $10 every month to She's the First incredibly, incredibly important revenue for us. If we can get those monthly donors, that sets the stage for our our revenue base because then we can just be building on that. Um, Tammy talks about this all the time. And so I think as a young-ish organization, a small-ish organization with a lot of hustle, they've had to try so many things. And I think that's what makes it so powerful for the board because we know coming into it, and this is also really important for board development, that we're not just looking for people who can write big checks. We're looking for people who can understand messaging and communications in order to get a campaign out there that might then generate a lot of visibility and unexpected um, opportunities for us fundraising-wise. We're looking for, for people whose firms or companies can actually contribute skills to understanding how to diversify our fundraising strategy. We're looking for people who want to mobilize their friends and family um, to make those smaller dollar donations, but maybe they're doing it on a monthly basis. And so that means that you know we're, we're building on that more steady, unrestricted revenue base that is so, so important. So I think it's, it's just having that diversity and, and knowing that the hustle doesn't necessarily ever go away. That you always had a hustle, <laughs> right? I mean, that's just the nature of it. And that's okay. You know, Mackenzie Scott has changed that game a little bit. But God love until, uh, yes, absolutely. Uh, and until we get that phone call and for many years after, we're just going to be hustling. That's right. And I just, I love everything that you're saying. You're so evolved in the modern way you're looking at the world right now. And I mean, we will give it up to Tammy and Kristen because they have diversified beautifully. Julie, I want to say our incredible unicorn producer, that was her first monthly gift. She is still a member of the front row um, because she was inspired by them. I remember when they came on the podcast, do you remember this, John? They had been on the Drew Barrymore show the day after and we felt such imposter syndrome. But it's like, I do think the messaging, not just diversifying your funding, but diversifying how you're showing up, how you're getting your Mm -hmm. story told. And I thank you for understanding that because I think even just trying to get dollars and nonprofit for marketing, for digital community and connection is very difficult, but you fundamentally understand this. And I'm so geeked out to talk to you about the meteor because I want people to go and check out the meteor. And we want to talk about like innovation and collaboration within the sector, because throughout your career, you've seen that intersection of media, nonprofit, government affairs, journalism, fundraising, consulting, you know, on and on. 
talk to us about what you've learned about the intersection of all the skills for good. How can we move forward as a sector with greater collaboration between industries, flexing all of these different avenues by which they can really help our missions rise? Yeah, I mean, I was so fortunate that as I was starting out, I was already a little bit of a fish out of water, let's say going to business school, in that I came from the nonprofit sector. I sort of had a sense that I was definitely going back to to the nonprofit sector. And yet here I was at this bastion of capitalism, right? And learning primarily through the lessons exemplified by for-profit companies. And so starting out of the gate, I mean, that was just another aha moment if I had to go back to some of those early years around, what do you mean you can go to business school and do still do good for the world? I mean, by the way, I had to also figure out what business school was. I had no idea what an MBA was when I was going to college. So, I mean, this is just not the, the world that in space that I came from. So again, it's a little bit off brand, but um, I'll take it. Um, but, you know, then... I, I so I I feel fortunate that I kind of had that orientation from a very early time in my career around what the sectors could contribute to one another, and so I sort of started out armed with my newly minted MBA, kind of going into at that time early childhood agencies and helping almost as an on-site consultant bring you know, accounting, marketing, data analysis, financial management, all of those skill sets to these agencies that just had lacked capacity in those areas. But what was super interesting for me was realizing over time that the skill set that I had developed over time on the impact side was actually attractive to for-profit companies and bringing me in to really help devise their impact strategies was um, was sort of a new idea for me. And I didn't know that that was an option. I didn't know that that at that time, I mean, look, to be fair, that field had just really started to accelerate and evolve at the time, again, dating myself, like early 2000s coming out of business school, um, you were starting to hear about corporate social responsibility but it had a lot of different names and some people were doing it well and others were trying to figure it out. Everyone was well-meaning, but it wasn't the robust and rigorous field that I do think it is now. And so for me, I've always sort of operated, I talk about being on the cusp of the sectors and I don't like to even say that I've worked in the nonprofit sector or that right now I work at a for-profit company. For me, I work at impact. I work in the impact sector. Because I work in a in a sphere and a space and ecosystem of organizations that care about advancing impact, and primarily over the past ten plus years, that's been about advancing impact for women and girls. You could certainly apply that to companies and entities, nonprofits, NGOs that are working in the climate space, right? That are working in the economic development space, job creation, supporting small business owners, supporting racial justice. And so to me, if we could break down some of those silos between the sectors, it would be so powerful. I mean, I think that's what we're starting to do. That's the good news. I do think that's what we're starting to do is recognize that someone who has spent a lot of years working at a small uh, nonprofit organization certainly knows about hustle, knows about how to do more with less knows about strategy, knows how to talk to investors, 
um, stakeholders, all of those skills are translatable to for-profit entities, particularly if they're interested in impact, but just they're translatable no matter what. And so I think this porousness is so important amongst the sectors because I think we all need one another. I don't think that nonprofits can get it done alone. I don't think that for-profits can get it done alone. And I am hopeful about companies really taking up the mantle of, of impact. The Meteor is an extreme example of that. I mean, we're all about impact, right? Oh, we're we're story using storytelling. Yeah, we're using storytelling to advance gender equity and racial justice. That is the reason for our being. So we're a little bit different in that regard, I think. Um, happily so, right? We're trying to break the model around what a traditional media company looks like. And I think that is so powerful. The vision that Cindy Levy, the former editor-in-chief of Glamour, now co-founder and CEO of The Meteor, what she and her fellow co-founders cooked up in Gloria Steinem's living room, no less, the same place (laughs) where Ms. Magazine was conceived of and founded. Feet trying to get back on the ground. That's (laughs) right. I mean, this is, I think that's the way that um, so many companies are going to go. That's what's so exciting about this new generation of entrepreneurs also coming up. They don't think about necessarily just one particular sector. They think about what impact they want to have in the world. And there, there might be a business strain to that impact. There might be a, an impact strain to that. There, I think we just have to break down this idea that you can only go at one path or another and just keep trucking along in that direction if, if you, you want to do good in the world. I just think that that's not productive. I think it, it really has to be this sort of melding of people coming together across the sectors and, and really understanding the, the, the value of different stakeholders coming together around a shared issue and a shared problem. I mean, how might this just revolutionize our world if we all showed up to say we're here for the impact? Like it doesn't matter the walls. If we can get centered around the right things and listen and create solutions, it's going to take all of us. I feel so buoyed and just energized from this conversation. I mean, okay, you've given a little glimpse of the meteor. I just can't move on without giving a chance to talk about, y'all also have this incredible 501c3 arm that's venture backed. Can you break this down for us? The meteor fund? At the meteor? How yeah. So yeah. no, it's, it's actually, it dates back to, and it all comes back to She's the First and Girls Education. It's all linked, right? So I'm sitting at an advisory committee meeting of She's the First, and I truly just hear out of the, the, like this, oh, Glamour, yeah, they're looking for someone to lead the Girl Project. You know, that, that philanthropic initiative that they founded after they honored Malala as one of the women of the year. I, I just heard it. I was sitting in a conference room, not unlike this. And so I went for the job. I, I, I hustled and I said, how do I get that job? Um, and she, cause she's the first, was a grantee of the Girl Project, which is a philanthropic initiative of the brand. I, we believe it was one of the first uh, initiatives of the kind of a women's media brand. And all credit, all hail to Cindy and her, her co-founder, Genevieve Roth, who should definitely have on this podcast at some point soon, to say this, on, there's something, Genevieve. yeah, absolutely, that, that there's a way that um, a brand like Glamour can give back on this issue. And so she's the first became part of a portfolio of organizations, including Plan International, Lower East Side Girls Club, and a bunch in between 
of organizations that were supported by the Girl Project as a special initiative of Glamour as a magazine and a brand. And I think Cindy took that experience with her to the Meteor. And when she founded, co-founded the company, always knew that there was an opportunity to work with philanthropic partners to help do the things that traditional media companies often don't have the resources or just the business dynamics don't support them doing these other projects that end up being so powerful in terms of deepening understanding of the issues. And I think what we found at Glamour was that when we would do a piece about, you know, um, women in the Congo and and some of the things that that were frankly happening to them and um, the support that they needed after being victims of, of war and traffic etc. The readers just just responded, but it was always, as Cindy says, sort of the side dish. It was never the main course. And so at the Meteor, really everything is about um, that impact-driven, issues-driven content being the main course. And so there's a, a really amazing space for philanthropy to come in there and help support the overall business model of, of the brand by coming in through this nonprofit fiscally sponsored project, the Meteor Fund. And so this is the way that we work with foundations and other philanthropists to um, create virtual workshops that allow us to get deeper into the issues that we report on in our newsletter and through social media, like certainly abortion access, maternal mortality, caregiving, voting rights. We've done virtual workshops on all of these issues over the past couple of years. We just did a content series called My Abortion Story is Not What You Think. It was highlighting you know, unique perspectives and unexpected takes on, on the abortion issue and really lifting up the idea that it's, 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 this is an issue that everyone is affected by. Um, and access to this right is important for all of us, not just for birthing people, not just for women. Um, to be honest, that's not that's not a project that the corporate sponsors you know rush to, and that's yeah. just the reality, right? And so this is where philanthropy can serve such an instrumental role in allowing us to tell stories with empathy, um, with creativity, really at that intersection of art and social justice so that we can help and make that content, but by the way, freely available to people and have it be shared as widely as possible so that we can just tell the stories that aren't really being told um, and reach new audiences, reach new people, people who are on the cusp and just poised to just come right on board. And it's, it just could be that one story in 90 seconds that moves them to understand uh, that this is this is a right that's that's really important for everyone to be able to have access to, and then we're able to do really interesting things around our events and our virtual workshops and our content that allow us to get deeper um, through through education. You know, toolkits that really lift up some of the leading feminist thinkers. I mean, I think it's the way of the future, right? To create and found a company in the way that the Meteor has been founded. That's the way that we've all got to be going: is to really be thinking about impact from day one. And create whatever vehicle is the right vehicle for that particular company, given the business model. What is the right structure around building impact into your organization from the moment you open your virtual or live doors? Where does it start? And I think more brands are doing that, which is really, really exciting. Yeah, I agree with you. I just, I commend you for the way that the meteor shows up. But 
you're a storyteller. I mean, we've been enraptured by what you've been saying this whole time. We wonder if you have a story of philanthropy that has really stuck with you because we believe so deeply in this community that story can change everything. So I wonder if there's one you would be willing to share with us today. There are so many. Um, I was really struggling with just isolating one. But what I would say, and you mentioned Kahani, and so I think that's where I would want to go with um, with this question. Kahani is a print magazine designed to inform, elevate, and inspire girls around the world through the power of storytelling. And so far, and I have to check my notes because I want to get it right, we've had 58 girls in 27 countries contribute to the first two issues of Kahani. Um, oh, and that. they, and we have this feature, which I just love. It's called Girl on a Mission. And it allows us to put a spotlight on the incredible things that girls are doing around the world to support other girls and the community around them. And those are the stories that I think of when I think about the most inspiring moments of philanthropy. You know, you have Esther from Uganda, who realized that there was a lack of information and knowledge about menstruation in her community. So with help from She's the First, created a menstrual pad project where she and other girls from her community actually make reusable menstrual pads, provide education. They fundraised around creating a washroom where the girls would have privacy and be able to, to change and, um, and stay hygienic. Uh, so I think about Esther all the time. I think about Katie in Canada is going to be in an upcoming issue who is an incredible climate justice activist who wants to lower the voting age in Canada so that she and her fellow young people have more of a voice in what happens to climate change policy. I think about Mizun, who was our first girl featured on the cover of Kahani um, back in 2021. And she was a refugee. She fled her native Syria. She found herself in refugee camps in Jordan, the same camps that I visited in early 2018 as part of the Girl Project, which was exactly the moment that inspired me to start Kahani down the line. And when she realized that there were a lot of girls um, being kept back from school and, and starting to marry at an earlier age, she started going door to door to door to talk to families about what it meant for the, their daughters to continue to go and to school and obtain an education. So, so for me, I mean, these are girls who are giving of themselves to the world. Um, and sometimes it's monetary and sometimes it's truly of themselves. It's just, they're pounding the pavement wherever they are and just trying to get a message out. And those are the moments that inspire me the most. It comes across in everything that you say and the way that you say it. And it is about impact for you. And we've gotten to see the magazine. It is beautiful. Like everyone's got to check this piece out. It's just truly incredible. Tara, I don't want to ask you this because it's our last kind of question as we wind down. We ask every guest to share with us a one good thing. You know, what's something you would leave with our audience, whether it's a mantra or a, just what, what are you feeling today that you'd want to share? You know, it's so funny. These things always happen for a reason. I was trying to formulate what I was going to say for one good thing on my way from DC. I was at a meteor event last night and I was having trouble formulating it. So the, the prosaic sort of basic <laughs> version of it was going to be, and I do believe, truly believe this. And I've talked about this. There's no waiting in life, right? I really believe that there's no, there's no better time than right now to set a goal start to go after it and start to change the world. I've always believed that, but I kid you not, 
And speaking of feminists that we don't know enough about, I was scrolling through my Twitter or whatever, and someone I don't even follow put this quote out on Twitter by Octavia E. Butler, a science fiction author, Black woman, um, who just re- I mean, died in 2006, um, pretty young. Uh, she grew up in the sort of Black power movement. And I kid you not, this is today, not two hours ago. This is the quote that, I, that, that was put out on Twitter. We don't have to wait for anything at all. What we have to do is start. It was just the perfect encapsulation for me of, of where we are in this moment, right? There are battles to be fought on so many different fronts, but we just have to start, put one foot in front of the, the other and keep going. We have to be driven by hope. And we just have to start. And you keep starting. I'm like looking at you and it's like, there's no slowing you down. Like from your MBA to these board leadership roles, to the media, to Kahani, I I think it's a great example of your heart is leading you into these spaces and you keep creating. And every time you create, you gather. And every time you gather, the ripple of the message goes further and the network gets bigger. And I believe so deeply in it's our core value, our final core value of our company, which is community is everything. And we believe that people who value align and are chasing purpose, they will do anything, but you're exactly right. All it takes is the first step. And I really, I'm just sitting here with a heart of gratitude. And I I look at your darling two little girls and your little feminist boy um, who are so sweet and so cute. And I just think this this is the way. And, and what a model for them to grow up seeing you pour your life into something like this. Thank you so much. Thank so tell so much us how people can connect with you, connect with all of the different uh, spaces that you're in. Give us all the details and where you are on social media. I, well, taraabrahams.com is a good place to start because um, it's got all, I think about a portfolio, right? So it's got everything in my portfolio there. But yeah, LinkedIn and Instagram, definitely reach out. I'm T Abrahams on Instagram and you can find me on LinkedIn and I welcome people to reach out. Don't wait. We've got a lot of work to do. So let's do it together. Yep. Check the show notes. We're going to pile up all these amazing links. Thank mm-hmm. you. What a gift this time has been. Keep Thank going. you so much. I, and Thank come you. back and tell come us how back. we can help. I, yeah. I, I just, I want more of you in the world. And I, and I just think you've set a great tone today for where we need to put our focus. Thank you, my friend. Thank you. Thank you so much. Hey friends. Thanks so much for being here. Did you know we create a landing page for each podcast episode with helpful links, freebies, and even shareable graphics? Be sure to check it out at the link in this episode's description. You probably hear it in our voices, but we love connecting you with the most innovative people to help you achieve more for your mission than ever before. We'd love for you to join our good community. It's free, and you can think of it as the after party to each podcast episode. You can sign up today at weareforgood.com backslash hello. One more thing. If you loved what you heard today, would you mind leaving us a podcast rating and review? It means the world to us, and your support helps more people find our community. Thanks, friends. I'm our producer, Julie Comfer, and our theme song is Sunray by Remy Borsboom. Rabbit fans have always powered the We Are For Good podcast, but now Rabbit fans can get even more goodness and access by joining Good Friends. It's our listener support community for the We Are For Good podcast. 
Good Friends comes with perks, exclusive episodes with John and I, including The Good Brief, our new monthly cliff notes of the greatest takeaways and lessons learned from that month, and exclusive AMA episodes where we answer your burning questions and tap our community of experts. Join now or learn more at weareforgood.com backslash friends. We can't wait to see you inside. That's weareforgood.com slash friends.